Welcome back into Bill's Chat. I am Josh McCarty. With me tonight, as always, is Luca. And Luca, kind of a familiar feel this week as we have a game to discuss to get ourselves ready for this regular season time slot of our post-game reaction. How are you doing tonight? Doing good. I like this habit we have now that's starting to develop here. Another mm-hmm. year where now our Sunday night recordings, if you are listening Monday or later on the week, it is our recap situation where we like to dive back into that we are of course still in the preseason so we have more in store when it comes to this episode in particular but i'm doing good i'm excited to get a recording and kind of put a cap to a very relaxing sunday that i've had myself speaking of cap if you're watching on youtube you might notice my hat is on backwards no i'm not going through a midlife crisis but thank you all for thinking that I am trying to keep the shadows out of my eyes that comes from my bill, if you could just imagine what that looks like. So it's an experiment tonight. We'll see how it goes. And also speaking of YouTube, we'd like to thank all of you watching there. While you're there, please take the time to like and subscribe. It helps us out so much as we are trying to build up our channel from the ground. And uh, we appreciate all of your support in that and all of your support to all of you who take in Bill's chat on a weekly basis. All right, Luca, the Bills played a football game kind of on Saturday. And it didn't go well. The Bills lost to the Pittsburgh Steelers 27 to 15. And, you know, scores are pretty much irrelevant at ha- at um, preseason. But this one kind of left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths, primarily because the starters did play three full drives, did not get anything going, no points on the board, 12 penalties in the first half. There's a lot to chew on with this game whether it's the fact that both tackles played poorly, whether it's the fact that Tyrell Dodson really seems to be regressing, even though he is the only guy standing now in the middle linebacker conversation. When this game ended, Luca, what issue, what point of frustration stood out first and foremost in your mind? Sloppiness. I mean, it it has to be that. Um, I I will say I'm not as upset as what it seems like the general public is. It seems like it's a massive thing. And I, I think, you know, someone like McDermott should be really, you know, pissed off. I, I think he in house should be very upset with these things because of course you need to coach that out and you don't really have another game time situation to do so. Cause the starters will not be playing in this final preseason game coming up. So that was kind of the dress rehearsal and it was sloppy as all hell. And it's like after a Colts game where it wasn't starter, all the starters playing, but again, was a sloppier ish game of, you know, penalties were a point of emphasis again, uh, or war then anyways. Um, but the sloppiness in general, I I think I'm not upset with it because it's preseason. You need to get the dress rehearsal. You got to get them out of your system, stuff like that. I, I think the moment you can almost be a little too casual understanding. It's essentially an exhibition. It's not a competitive game and maybe they're, that plays into it. I don't know. I'm just kind of saying that one right now, but overall you just don't want to see 12 in the first half when your starters are out there. That is an aggressive amount of penalties just cannot happen moving forward. And it's just the highlight of the game or the low light of the game, because it's just, that's the most alarming thing. All the other positional battles and things like that. Yes, there is problems there. There are, you know, things that are to be concerned about about with those, but as a team and everything in that, Penalties were no good and and it was bad. There was maybe like one or two penalties where it was, you know, essentially not coachable or just needed to happen or whatever you want to call it. And then obviously we'll say 10 of them essentially were just brutally awful penalties that should not be happening moving forward. There was a point in the first half where the bills had a third and 34 because of penalties. 
And you could just tell they were like, get us out of here. And they did a little screen to Latavius Murray and got off the field. And it was unfortunate because one of those penalties erased what would have been the play of the game, an absolute seed from Josh Allen to Gabe Davis down the left sideline. And I thought Gabe Davis looked good. I thought Deontay Hardy looked good. Diggs looked like Diggs. But um, if we're going to start with the good, and I I don't mind doing that, there's going to be some stuff to dwell on here, but I do want to get some of the good things out of the way first because, again, I don't care about the score. I don't care about the fact that the Bills lost a game that we'll all forget about a month from now. Uh, But I do want to talk about some individual performances, individual one-on-one battles, positional battles, I thought, Luca, this was a great night for the rookie class. You had Osiris Torrance starting with the first team, and man, did he play well. I went back and watched every Josh Allen drive, so the first three drives for this offense. He was, in my opinion, by far the best offensive lineman. I thought McGovern and Morse played well, too, but Torrance was a very steady hand in there. There was one play where Spencer Brown got beat on the inside by T.J. Watt, And this is where me not being a coach, me not understanding the scheme is where I'm going to just hold off on saying Spencer Brown lost the play, but Osiris Torrance's awareness to peel off what he was doing and then help out Spencer Brown looked like a 10 year vet to me. It was such a heady play. I have yet to see this game look too big for him. You've been on this train. This Osiris Torrance is going to start train way longer than I have. I kept thinking they would go back to Ryan Bates. Ryan Bates really didn't do anything to lose the job. He's kind of like the Dane Jackson of the offensive line. But man, Luca, two preseason games in a row, Torrance gets all the starting reps. Ryan Bates had a grand total of two reps at right guard in this entire game, played primarily at backup center. It sure feels like the Bills are looking like they're going to have a rookie right guard on opening night against the Jets. I think the play of Torrance from the opening of camp has essentially forced the hand of the Bills at this point. And this is where my head was at early on. This is kind of the, I wanted to live in this world. I wanted to believe that this is what's happening. And it seems to be potentially transpiring that way. You have Osiris Torrance, who has a ceiling that is very, or yeah, ceiling that's very high. We just hope that his floor is not low. It seems like that floor is also at a very good place right now where you might be able to start him week one, which I am hoping for. If that is then the case, you can really work on having Bates be kind of potentially that future at center, understanding that there is a there is a point where Morse will no longer be your center. And then on top of that, Morse does have some sort of history When it comes to not being available at times, whether it's concussions, whether it's other injuries that have just kept, you know, kept him out for half a game to a game or whatever it might be. He has a history of it. So you need to have that insurance policy because we've seen what happens when they don't and Morse is out. It's a it's an all out disaster. And Bates can be serviceable in that position himself. And if they can just focus on that and then also let him also be the depth guard if they need to due to injury as well. And Osiris Torrance can be that guy at right guard. It just propels him in his career from an early point moving forward with a high floor, high ceiling situation, which is the best situation to be in if you're a young rookie. And then on top of it, you're almost helping the future of the offensive line with the future beyond Mitch Morse by having Bates prepare and get ready for the future at that position to replace Morse. And it's a good place to be. So I'm so happy that Torrance is essentially proving my hopes of him correctly. And just from day one, when I noticed that 
he was clearly getting a lot more snaps early on and, and they were doing the alternating and then all of a sudden stopped and it was Torrance day after day at the out there with the ones starting at right guard. And it's like, okay, there is something here. I don't think they would do that unless there really was something that kind of caught their eye in such a good way. So I, I love that he played well and stuff like that. He clearly looked like the game, like you said, is not getting away from him. He looks up to speed and everything. And at this point in time, man, I am ready for them to kind of just come out and give him that nod, give him the start at right guard, because I think it's probably the best thing for the team moving forward. And I do think there will still be growing pains. I, I'm not saying that I expect him to just be a better player than Bates week in, week out all the time. I think there will probably be weeks where we see Torrance have maybe a rough one there here and there. That's just what happens. I'm 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 just saying I'm willing to live with that. I am willing to live with that because I think what you can get out of Torrance is higher than Bates even now, and then will help him develop into an even greater guard for the future to come. It just makes too much sense to do that and do it immediately. Yeah, it feels like right now he's about at least even with Bates as far as overall talent with a much higher ceiling, like you said. So that's an exciting development to track as we're going forward. Dalton Kincaid caught his first pass up preseason, had a couple catches in there, and man, he was as good as advertised. Caught a couple passes from Josh Allen, looked really smooth in his route running, had a nice downfield catch with Matt Barkley. His feel for knowing how to get open, knowing how to use his body, use his leverage to, to win against a defensive back is something to watch. It is amazing. I, I knew he was good. But even watching him play, it is so fluid. It is so impressive. There's no tightness to his game at all. I watch him, and the word that just comes to my mind is smooth. And I, I'm so happy to see the Bills embracing him in this role because this could have gone the other way. They have da- they have Dawson Knox in-house. They didn't have to embrace this 12-personnel offense. They could have easily said, Our offense was just fine last year, top five. We're putting you in the pipeline, but we don't need you this year. We got this. But instead, they're leaning into this in a big way. And I cannot wait to see the impact that Dalton Kincaid has on this offense. It feels like Josh Allen loves throwing him the ball, and he has been on the field a lot. He was on the field for 13 of Josh Allen's 17 snaps. It's worth mentioning Dawson Knox didn't play. Had a minor finger injury pop up right before the game. Obviously, it's preseason, so there's no reason to tough it out. He's day-to-day. He should be fine. But in general, Luca, everything we've seen from camp, everything we saw last week against the Colts where he got the VIP treatment, get in, get out, and then this week to be on the field, um, 13 of the 17 Josh Allen snaps, that tells me that he's going to have a big role as early as his rookie year. I think he's going to have a greater than 50% snap share his rookie year. I, I can't disagree with you on that. It, it seems to be just absolutely trending in that direction. I'm with you. I'm glad they embrace this. I'm glad that they, they, you know, pinpoint his talent. They understand what it is. They really wrap their minds around it and want to kind of mold the offense to involve it in different ways. And it, it seems that that is the case. They didn't go, as you said, just kind of understanding, Hey, we had something good going. We can kind of have you figure it out in this system. It's like, no, they're going to build on that because they have someone of his talent with his skill set, And they're just going to move forward with that. And he just continues to kind of almost prove them right. He, he continues to show them that the, what they saw is actually what they can get and hopefully, you know, build on from there. 
And it, it's unfair to Kincaid to constantly be like Kelsey like and stuff like that. But you can see where I think that's where their mind is. They're hoping to get something of that kind of production because of course, Kelsey himself being one of the best that's ever done it at that position. And he's very unique in that sense where he really is just very shifty in space, understanding with his quarterback's relationship and stuff like that. And he can always just make the best out of something while being smooth in his route running and great with his hands. That's what, I mean, everything I just said, you could copy and paste and put it with Kincaid. It's just, can he develop and continue to grow to then get to such a level similar to that the projection is there. The ceiling seems to be there at this point in time. There's nothing that tells you otherwise. It's unfair to put that label on him, but at the same time, he kind of has deserved it at this point because he looks very, very good. And it's just going to be exciting to see once the games start mattering, he's under the bright lights and he gets an entire game or two and three and four and so on to continue to show what he really is. The last rookie I want to talk about tonight is uh, rookie wide receiver, Justin Shorter, the Bills fifth round pick. He had five receptions for 47 yards and a TD, led all Bills receivers with receptions and yardage. What I noticed about him, Luca, he was very aggressive in his routes. He seemed like there there was a decisiveness to his game, and I love how he used his big body to his advantage. You saw multiple times he boxed out the defender. The touchdown pass to him was not a great throw by Kyle Allen. Torrance was open on the post route, had to turn around and kind of catch it in his lap, which is not ideal ball placement but you love to see a receiver able to complete the play because not all the passes in the NFL are going to be perfect. And Josh Allen will try to fit it into windows that aren't always right where your hands are. So for a guy like that to shine like that, I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, Justin Shorter is going to be a starting receiver next year, but we know he's going to help the team, the Bills out on special teams. We saw him running with the first team gunner on punt unit. That should tell you everything you need to know about his roster chances. But I do think, Luca, beyond his role on special teams, there is an intriguing athletic skill set here with Justin Shorter that I'm excited to see if the Bills can tap into it over the next couple of years. Yeah, it, I think uh, we mentioned it one of these previous episodes. He's in a beautiful position where you want him to make the roster and he's showing that he should hopefully be able to hold on to one of those 53 spots. And then from there, if he can be suited up, I don't even necessarily like he will be most likely suited up for game days. But even then, it's like as long as he's part of the roster, as, as long as he can be in-house to develop, as you're saying, the thing with him is he can hopefully be something for us down the road. And there is zero pressure whatsoever that he needs to do anything right now unless they have cataclysmic injuries at the position, to be quite honest. So it's like he can just learn at his own pace, do his own thing, and you can still see that there is something there. You can see that the talent is there and you just need to coach on some things because he has the things that you can't coach. As I know you love to say, he has all the things you cannot coach. He's got the size. He's got the abilities with his athletic talent, his athletic abilities that, Hey, how you hone it in, how you teach him from here is up to the coaching staff and everything like that. But there's zero pressure that they need to lean on him when it comes to production on game days. And that's a beautiful thing for him and hopefully can allow him to develop in such a proper manner that maybe, yeah, as you're saying, two, three years down the road, he can be more of a legitimate weapon for this offense. Yeah, it'll be fun to watch him grow and, and see what can become of this pick because it seems like he's going to make the roster for sure. And uh, he should help this team out at least on fourth downs early on in his career. Um, I do want to take a look at the snap share of players who were on the field when Josh Allen was out there. Cause there were a couple interesting takeaways. 
So Josh Allen played 17 snaps. I went back and charted this. And that includes snaps that were called back by penalties. The reason why I included this is because those were play the plays the Bills intended to run, and then they didn't get run. So they won't match what you see on PFF because those those plays get taken out. James Cook was on the field for 15 of those 17 plays, only came off for two plays when he got tired, one of which was the give-up screen on third and 34 to Latavius Murray. Latavius Murray obviously had the other two snaps. Um, so I do want to talk about Cook. But then when you look at this wide receiver depth uh, depth chart, Davis and Diggs got a snap share you'd expect 14 and 13 apiece. Deontay Hardy had eight snaps, led the team in slot percentage when Josh Allen was on the field. Trent Sherfield played inside and out. And Khalil Shakir Luka of the 17 snaps Josh Allen was on the field had one snap. So I feel like, let's start with the wide receivers. I feel like we're starting to see separations from the haves and have nots. I feel like there's a top four now. It's pretty defined. I think it's it's Diggs, Davis, top two. It's Sherfield, Hardy, three and four. And I thought Joe Biscaglia had a great point that I hadn't considered on his podcast tonight. So Hardy's lining up primarily in the slot. Sherfield has been more outside. And the easy takeaway is, well, Hardy's going to get more run than Sherfield because they're looking for a slot receiver to come in when Kincaid's not on the field. And Joe Biscaglia's read was much different. He said that he thinks that the stage Stefan Diggs is in in his career, the Bills are going to make a more calculated effort to line him up in the slot. So he thinks when Kincaid is off the field and they go three wide, it'll be much more Sherfield, Davis, Diggs in the slot and Hardy mixes in a little bit more like the Isaiah McKenzie role from a couple years back where you just mix them in from time to time. You get them, you know, two or three touches a game. I had not thought about it like that, but Luca, I feel like when you look at how Stefan Diggs is as a player and you obviously have great um, history with this tracking Larry Fitzgerald and what he did in the slot later in his career, I get really excited thinking about the potential of Stefan Diggs having at least a decent chunk of his snaps coming out of the slot. I love the comparison and love bringing up the, I, I was, it was in my head. What I will say is the move of Fitz going from outside to in was for a little bit of different reasons. I will say Fitz is a much more physical uh, person as well as didn't have as much of a speed to him. He still had kind of that long gazelle like speed in his prime. And then of course, as age came, that went away, but he could create separation. And so many, there's a reason he's a top five wide receiver of all time. Let's, let's not choke ourselves, but overall, I, I don't know if it's apples to apples. What I will say is I do think it's somewhat kind of tracks and it is exciting because it just allows you to understand that there will be more opportunities where Diggs isn't being locked down by a number one corner, unless they want to outright, absolutely man up, Whoever their top guy is, no matter what, just track him the entire time. If Diggs is in the slot, you're you're going to imagine every game that's not going to be the case, and therefore he will be lined up against you know nickel corners, your third best corner linebackers, just based on you know position groups out there and personnel groups. I mean stuff like that. It, it just opens up the door of ability and stuff like that with this offense. And Sherfield is good in his own right playing that outside position where it just makes a lot of sense. I like that idea a lot. I, like I said, when it comes to Fitzgerald, like Fitzgerald's value, honestly, too, it, this is my head. As soon as you said it, like my head's like, I, I got to like differentiate these things. Fitzgerald was an unbelievable blocker, 
like Bruce Arians taught him how to block like no other essentially and being how big he was now physical he could be his blocking prowess was incredible I don't see Diggs ever getting involved in that so for instance I'm not seeing Diggs being in the slot all of a sudden being an x-factor when it comes to you know cracking open outside runs like Fitzgerald would do I will say that but that's not why you have digs on the field anyway. So <laughs> that doesn't matter too much overall. I do think when it comes to his passing production and abilities, being in the slot more is an exciting thing. And I'm with you on that, where it could be almost like a resurgence of just utilization, finding production elsewhere, where maybe he could dominate on the outside hundred percent of the time. And maybe now you can, you know, grow on that, have him outside where he can still be productive, but bring him into the slot to get him better looks and more opportunities from there as well. And then you just have someone else to take that spot on the outside for the time being, being a Sherfield or whoever. And um, yeah, I do like that idea. I think that's a great read on it as well. Um, and then on top of it, it's like, Hey, if, if Hardy is your primary slot guy, that's great. That's fantastic. But you're going to put digs in the slot if you really want. And then Sherfield plays outside. You're not playing Hardy outside and you could even put Kincaid outside. If you really wanted to just based on size, not necessarily speed and stuff, you can just move chess pieces around in this offense and they can do a lot of different things. I would, I'm with Biscaglia and you though, when it comes to, you're going to do Davis, you're going to have digs in the slot and Sherfield outside most likely, but it just shows that they're willing to try a lot of different things. I think that's where I want to end that point. They're willing to do a lot of different things on this offense and see what can be successful and to get people in more successful places. It's interesting. I just looked on PFF. Diggs had a 30% snap share in the slot last year. He played 245 snaps in the slot. So that's even heavier than I was expecting. So maybe if that creeps closer to 40 and all due respect to Dalton Kincaid and Gabe Davis and Dawson Knox and James Cook, Stefan Diggs right now is still the only skill position player that opposing defenses really have to game plan for. We're hoping Dalton Kincaid become that. We obviously hope James Cook can become that. Uh, but Luca, let's talk about Shakir very quickly. Um, you know, I don't want to spend too much time on this because at the end of the day, we're talking about what's going to be the wide receiver five. But is my read correct here? Do you do you think at this point that he he is tumbling down the depth chart? Because I do think if he falls into that wide receiver five category and Justin Shorter or Andy Isabella, who we can talk about here in a second, are six or seven, they're going to be active over him on game day because they they contribute on special teams in ways that he doesn't. And now you're looking at a guy that many thought would be wide receiver three coming into the season in street clothes on game day. Yeah, I'm I'm with you 100. I'm I'm going to the length of I, I think Shakir is kind of he's on the balance. He's on the bubble right now, and and I don't know yeah. that they would cut him. I think if push came to shove and they were like, we want to make sure we can have Isabella on this roster. They're going to be shopping him. I, I think that would be kind of the play there. They're going to look to move him out of house and get something for him rather than just cutting him loose. I, I think it would be kind of a little irresponsible to cut him loose, but at the same time, he is technically a fifth round pick. So when it comes to investment sake, it's not like you're going to get a whole heck of a lot in return. Like I don't want anyone out there thinking you're going to magically get a day two pick for him. I don't, that is not, gonna happen you're, you're not getting, getting Tristan Wirfs <laughs> yeah you're getting a, probably a seven like that's mm -hmm. what you're getting for him so like but you'd rather do that than just cut him free overall though I, I do think he's on the bubble I think Isabella which we will roll into here in a second I think Isabella is if after yesterday 
uh, obviously we're recording Sunday night, re- reiterate that uh, yesterday, Isabella once again just showed he has a little bit more value to this roster when it comes to multiple facets to prove his worth on this roster. And it's just like, hey, man, he also has that 4-3 speed. It's like it's clear as day. And it's something this team just doesn't have enough of. So if you have someone in-house already that seems to have a rapport that's growing with individuals that matter, such as Josh Allen, and then he's also useful in special teams and things like this, it's like at some point you just have to accept it for what it is. You just have to. It is what it is. And again, we're talking about on the depth chart-wise, the wide receiver five spot. And if, if that's what it comes down to, it is what it is, and just accept it for what it is. So one thing you could do, I, I know Anina's become kind of popular among people on Twitter now is, um, what should, I'm trying to think of the guy's name. Um, you got the tackle from Kelvin Beecham. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I don't know. I, we, we talked about him all off season as a guy that we would have actually targeted in free agency. He and George Fant kind of checked that box of should be cheap starting experience, good swing tackle. I think if you could trade Shakir for someone like that to a team like the Cardinals, that maybe they're thinking, you know, we're probably not going to win this year. Kyler Murray's going to be, you know, boxed up for at least a couple months. <laughs> uh, we lost DeAndre Hopkins. Maybe we can take a flyer on this guy that was relatively highly thought of in last year's draft and fell for whatever reason. And if all we have to do is give up on a tackle that we have on a one-year deal, maybe that's worth it. I think that's the kind of move that the Bills should consider. You mentioned Isabella showed his value again. He was out there as a gunner. And he was out there the first three kick returns. So I think it is trending toward Isabella making this a much more difficult conversation than I would have given it credit for even as, as recently as a week ago. All right, we got to talk about the negatives. We, we talked about positives. We already mentioned James Cook appears to be like the lion's share carrier on the offense. Damian Harris didn't play, but all signs looking good for James Cook. I would say draft him with confidence in fantasy football drafts as a mid-level RB2. He's going to be very involved. All right. The tackles, Luca, the tackles struggled last night. And it's funny because Spencer Brown, I think caught the ire of bills fans. And it feels like maybe he's going to be the new Tremaine Edmonds where like when anytime an offensive play goes wrong, it's going to be, Oh, it's Spencer Brown's fault. Like, you know, you used to see like a defensive play go wrong. Edmonds would be nowhere near what happened. And they'd be like, Oh, what was Edmonds doing on that play? Um, But you know, Spencer Brown didn't play great last night. He had the one um, miss block on Marcus Golden where he ended up having to basically tackle him to the ground to save Josh Allen's life. But all in all, the first three drives, I thought he held up fine. I thought he blocked TJ Watt reasonably well. He looked like Spencer Brown to me, which is basically a fringe starting offensive tackle. That's kind of what I expected. He looked, he didn't look overmatched out there. He just, he looked like Spencer Brown. I'll tell you, Luca. <laughs> My biggest concern is on the left side. And I, I think that's where the conversation probably needs to be a little louder. And I know the snowman, Deion Dawkins, is a fan favorite. And we see him on uh what was it on Barstool last week. And we know yeah, he has a great person. We know he has a great personality. We know he does like the the dancing in the locker room, and we all love him, but we gotta call a spade a spade. He did not have a great year last year. I think he was he, I think he went from being a good tackle to maybe like an above average tackle. And I will, I, I just, I haven't heard great things coming out of camp and I keep keeping it in the back of my mind. Like it's July, it's August. Um, I know there's some concern that as he's gotten older, maybe his weight looks a little sloppier. I 
you know, that's not my position to say that I'm certainly not his trainer and I am not the, the, um, the health physician on the bills, but I will tell you, there was a play last night where Kincaid chipped the edge that was coming in to even help out to slow it up for Dawkins and Dawkins still couldn't get there to block him in time. And it's a play that's pretty famous because it's going around Twitter now. Like, oh, here's Josh Allen doing crazy Josh Allen things again. Why is he abandoning a clean pocket? It's like, it's not a clean pocket. If he doesn't step up, he's going to get tackled by the guy that just blew by Deion Dawkins. Luca, what is your concern level right now with, with, I guess we'll just go both tackles, the tackle situation, because the Mulligans are gone. Brandon Shell retired. Tommy Doyle, if you had any hope for him, unfortunately suffered what is probably a season-ending injury. Um, but... What is your concern level now? Let's focus on just the starters with Dawkins and Brown. Spencer Brown's exactly what I expected him to be. I don't know if that's necessarily, I don't know if that's a good or bad thing. Honestly, it's probably not exactly a good thing. So I'll call it kind of a bad thing, but in the same regard, it's like, it's not like he got worse. He's just still exactly what he was. It's like, okay, as you, you put it perfectly. He is a fringe starter. He's athletic, but he has a lot of flaws and he has down moments. And then again, I'm with you all thousand percent. If he does not take that holding, if he does not practically tackle golden, the problem becomes golden is going to kill 17. And it's like, you have to, that is a penalty that I even referenced when I was talking about that being kind of the low light or highlight of the game. It's like, that's the penalty you have to take. I, it could be week nine. It's preseason. It doesn't matter. Do not let your quarterback get a free shot on him like that. You have to take care of that. And it's like, good on him. Good on him for recognizing that that just had to happen. Um, I am concerned for Dawkins, though. It's not pretty. And it's like, that was the one. We had a conversation last year around this time or maybe a little bit into the season where we talked about um, most valuable or like, what's the biggest drop off after the initial person? And it was like, Stefan Diggs was number one. Um, other than Josh Allen, uh, Stefan Diggs is number one and Deion Dawkins was number two. Deion Dawkins is the second most important person to stay healthy kind of deal outside of Josh Allen once again. Um, and it's like, yeah, because the drop-off is significant. Well, if all of a sudden he is really not at that level anymore, now we got serious problems because the strength used to be that left side being somewhat more reliable. If that's no longer reliable, how much are we going to see Josh Allen really have to just, as the PMT guys like to say, mash all the buttons to figure it out, which I love when they say that. Also, mm -hmm. the Deion Dawkins, to all the side, that Deion Dawkins interview on PMT, if you have not watched slash listened to it, please do. Highly entertaining. He it's managed to make the Barstool guys uncomfortable, and that was impressive. Oh, yeah, but they loved it at the same time. Yeah, oh, they loved it. Loved they, it. they were in <laughs> shock. They are <laughs> yeah. like, oh, that came yeah, out of your mouth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, anyways, um, Back to it. I am concerned for Dawkins. I, I think there's something to be concerned about. Hopefully, he's just one of those individuals where it's just hard for him to be motivated going into these exhibition style games. And once the games start mattering, once we get closer to the season and the adrenaline and everything like that, and the understanding of what's going on is there, then he kind of gets back to where he was last season. Because that's, I mean, when it comes to Dawkins that's all we need him to be realistically we just need him to be again what he was last year it wasn't great like you said above average starter that's fine when you have Josh Allen above average starter is perfectly okay 
Yeah, I, we don't need this offensive line to be top five. We just need it to be top 20. But Deion Dawkins and Mitch Morris are the two players that we've kind of just come to assume are going to be good enough. And if Deion Dawkins is slipping, that is a that is a big problem. We mentioned Tommy Doyle out, Brandon Shell retired. Right now, it looks like Ryan Vandemark could be the third tackle in the rotation. He came in again ahead of David Questenberry, who just continues to really struggle. But I think at this point, Questenberry is going to make the roster by default just because they're running out of people. And they have they have nobody else to really turn to at this point in time. All right. Speaking of a position that has nobody else to turn to, Luca, Tyrell Dotson had, I think, a real opportunity the last two weeks with Terrell Bernard having the hamstring injury with Dorian Williams being pulled out of the middle linebacker competition with Balen Spector going from getting reps with the ones to tumbling down all the way to the third team playing late in the fourth quarter. He had a real opportunity to just play well enough and really run away with this job with ease. Back-to-back preseason games, the direct opposite has happened. In my opinion, he was the primary culprit on the war and touchdown run. I know people want to want to give flack to Jordan Poyer for the bad angle. That is what it is. It's preseason. I'm not super concerned about that. But he, he basically, the play starts, the defensive line, Ed Oliver's on the ground. That was fun. And the play starts and you just see where the play is developing. And Matt Milano and Tyrell Dodson essentially run to the exact same spot, which, if you know, football, like you're, you're trying to create lanes that they can't go through. And, and it looked sure like Tyrell Dodson needed to contain the outside leverage there, which he most certainly did not, which allowed for that explosive run. And I think proof is in the pudding that the coaching staff saw it the same way because he came off the field and didn't come back on the field until the fourth quarter when he was playing with the third team defense and Luca, the bills second middle linebacker off the bench was AJ Klein. And we talked about when the bills brought him back, he is their break glass in case of emergency option. He is. If all these other options we have don't work out, we're going to go to AJ Klein. Well, whether it's injury with Terrell Bernard or development plan with Dorian Williams, or lack of development, I'm still going to include Terrell Bernard in that. I'm not just going to assume he's going to be great just because he's hurt right now, and he, when he comes back, it's going to be fine. Or performance issues, Tyrell Dodson, this might be the emergency that's making the Bills break glass. Oh, 1,000%. I think Tyrell Dodson now has basically shown his gap discipline is zero. He has yeah. no idea how to kind of stay in his lane quite literally. <laughs> and it's like, if you don't know how to do that, you cannot be a Mike. You cannot be a middle linebacker. You can't be, you can't be in the front seven of any NFL defense. You, ha- It's like one of the core things that you hear all the time, whether you're a spectator who has never played football in their life and you hear a commentator say it, they always talk about it. Gap discipline and run fits and things like that. Like you have to understand how that works to be an NFL player and be in an NFL defense. And it's like, he just clearly does not get it. And that is a massive, massive issue. You just, it's, it's half of the game. We'll call it because you're either passing it or you're running it. And it's like, if you have that big of a weakness, I feel like you're just going to get things pounded down your throat more and more. Cause they just understand if it's a safer way to transport the ball as well. So I think he, we talked about it on a bill chat live. This was the biggest game for him, you know, to me and to you as well. It was the most important game for him. It was really one that he needed to kind of lock down and win the job for it because it was being handed to him. He already lost that kind of, it's now not handed to you and it's make or break. 
and he just broke it. It is, it's gone. He he lost. It's it's crazy that a player who is being handed a job took two preseason games and lost the damn job. You lost it to AJ Klein, the most vanilla. He's gonna do absolutely nothing great, but nothing bad for you, linebacker of all time. Like it is like I'm, not, I'm not a vanilla ice cream guy, and it's like I look at AJ Klein, and I'm not talking because of skin color or anything. I say like milk that. check because that that is a milk check waiting <laughs> yeah. to happen. Yeah, by the that way. is a right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you know the reference, you know the reference. But that is a milk check, and it's mm-hmm. like, is it the is it the worst thing in the world? No. It's not a good thing either, though. It's it's you are one of 11 out there. You are a body. And hopefully all those all pros that we always mention around him when it comes to Milano, Poyer, Hyde, all of them, they can just pick up the slack for you and you just do your job. Um, but that's the reality they live in unless they go outside. I think that's what they're going to be doing, of course. And I'm, I'm sure you would have brought this up. You're well, I apologize if you're going to do that, but. I think middle linebacker is going to be something they're paying very close attention to on cut down day and seeing what hits the streets and then seeing if there's anyone that's worth bringing in off the streets after they just got cut and claiming them off waivers. Because at this point in time, man, like Dotson might make the roster, but I, and he probably should make the roster, yeah. but will he make the roster? I don't even know anymore because the efforts that he's put out there on tape for these two preseason games are extremely poor. It's funny, our friends at Air Raid Hour put out a 53-man roster projection today, and they had Dodson off of it. And at first I was like, that feels kind of reactive. And then I started thinking about it, and I was like, well, maybe. But I do think he probably makes it because his contract's fully guaranteed. I do think he's still good on special teams. But at the same time, like you mentioned it, this was handed to him on a silver platter. What do you think about the plan? Because it's not like this was a secret. It's not like we couldn't see this coming. And I'll be the first to tell you, I love Tremaine Edmonds. I think Tremaine Edmonds was criminally underrated by Bills fans. I would not have given him that contract the Bears gave him. I do not want to be the team that leads the league in off-ball linebacker contracts. We had Matt Milano in-house, and if he's going to go for that much money, all the best, Tremaine. You got a fan in me for life. Go do your thing in Chicago. But the Bills treated the rest of the offseason like they were all set at linebacker. And it's, it's, it's important to mention the timeline here because free agency went by and we saw guys like Drew Tranquil and TJ Edwards and David Long and Eric Kendricks come off the board at very below market deals. Even Jermaine Pratt, I left him off only because he went back to Cincinnati. So you figure maybe there's a hometown discount in there. And the bills just stayed out of that market. And this was before the draft. So there is a school of thought, like, did the Bills just assume all along they were going to get Jack Campbell, and then when the Lions took him, they panicked. I've seen that floated around. I would hope that's not the case, but the way they acted this offseason, I feel like that at least deserves consideration. And then what we've seen them do now in back-to-back drafts is spend a day-two pick on an off-ball linebacker, which by all accounts, Luca, is right next to running back as far as positions that are supposed to be easiest to fill if you have an opening. And now neither one of these third round picks the Bills have drafted, Dorian Williams this year, Terrell Bernard last year, are tracking toward being the starter. And I know there's a school of thought out there is like, oh, Bernard's injured. When he comes back, he's going to be the starter. That's fine. And maybe that's the case. But my question to all of you is, what have you seen from Terrell Bernard that gives you any confidence that he's going to be good at that? I want to be wrong about him so badly. I want Terrell Bernard to come in 
and just be a solid baseline starter. I don't need him to be a star. If he's a star, fantastic. But let's just check the notes of his career. Looked overwhelmed in preseason. He got like our least valuable player award in a preseason game that he scored a defensive touchdown on because that's how bad he looked in coverage. He got one start last year because the Bills were down their two starting linebackers. He played so badly against the Jets. He did not get another defensive snap the rest of the season. And we've mentioned this time and time again. The Bills signed A.J. Klein off the street and elected to play him a week later on Thanksgiving over Terrell Bernard. Lost in that conversation. Tyrell Dodson was there too, by the way, and they played A.J. Klein over him. And then Terrell Bernard couldn't even get a jersey on game day in the playoffs when the Bills were down to you and me at defensive linemen. So I think that I want to hope that Terrell Bernard can take this job and run for it because quite honestly, there's no more mystery box left. We know what A.J. Klein is. I think we know what Tyrell Dodson is. Unfortunately, it seems like we know what Balen Specter is. So the only place of hope here for these 2023 Buffalo Bills and middle linebacker within the building is Terrell Bernard takes a leap unless they decide to re-invite Dorian Williams into the conversation, which doesn't seem imminent. So what is your thought on the plan here? Because this feels like the worst case scenario is playing out right in front of their eyes. I would like to hope that there was not, we're putting all our eggs in a basket of named Jack Campbell or just a draft pick in general that is the most mismanaged use of hope and just skill and any, you don't do that. You don't put all your eggs in one basket. You don't just hope for something that you actually have zero control over for the most part. Like you, you just don't do something like that. That's mismanagement in the highest degree in this, you know, in professional sports, really, you don't just hope to God, you're going to get this guy. It's, we're not talking about a number one overall pick and you're sitting there at two and all you got to do is move up to one, whatever the situation may be. It's like, no, you're, you're talking about a guy who is projected day two. Maybe if you reach into the first to grab him at, at the back end of one, and then it turns out he actually gets picked at 15 or whatever it was by the lions. It's I, I would imagine that's not the case. I'm just going to go under the understanding that being in the front office is not that stupid. Um, that said, how they handled the plan, I have massive questions about. Another name you didn't mention was Levante David. He was there at one point. Nothing happened, it seemed like, for a couple weeks, and then goes back to Tampa. I think that there were conversations that were had between him and other teams. He just didn't like the conversations that were had. And then he decided to just go back and essentially see his career out in Tampa at this rate, because it just is what it is. And that's what it made most sense to him. Good for him. That's fine. But all those different linebackers you mentioned, it's like they were there and it's not even like they came off the board or came off free agency a day or two in. They were there for a good week. If I remember correctly, especially like the Eric Kendricks or uh, Bobby Wagner's and things like that. It's like those guys were there. There were things that could have been had, and it just seemed like the Bills were quiet because they, I would imagine, had a different plan. But if the different plan is what we saw now, it's a disaster. It, it's it, This is the worst way that they could have managed it. And I, I personally, to wrap this point up real quick, I am where I want to see them be very aggressive if anything pops up on cut down day. I want them to look at every possible candidate that gets cut on cut down day and bring them in over a Dodson or so whatever you have to do to make it happen. Because I do not believe until Bernard proves it to me, which he unfortunately could not this preseason due to injury, but until he proves it to me on the field on tape that he can be better than what we last saw. 
I am not willing to just be like, oh, he's back from injury week two against the Raiders. Let's throw him in there because the last time I saw him go against the Jets, which was not an impressive offense in their self, led by Zach Wilson, it still let the Jets win that game because he was just that bad. Not him alone was the reason, but the point is he was that bad in that performance that the Bill staff and us sitting back were like, this guy cannot play at that point moving forward. And therefore he did not get another defensive snap for the rest of the season, as you pointed out. And they trusted off the street, AJ Klein, which it looks like they're doing again this time around instead of anyone else. And it's like, look, you got to do something else. You have to in house is just not it. Figure it out elsewhere. The last defensive player I want to talk about is Kyir Elam. He, um, he seems to be falling down the pecking order, had a bad pass interference penalty in the end zone that extended that drive on Darnell Washington and then get, subsequently gave up the touchdown, had bad coverage on a third down to Calvin Austin. And this was, to me, the most concerning one because everything we've heard about Kyrie Elam is the one thing he's NFL ready to do now is man press cover. And this was a man press cover situation against Calvin Austin, and he just got beat off the line and was wide open for a first down. Uh, it feels like he's falling down the pecking order. He was in in the fourth quarter playing opposite Alex Austin long after Christian Benford had been taken out of the game. I would not be surprised at this point, Luca, if it's more of a two-horse race between Benford and Dane Jackson with, with edge probably to Dane Jackson. Maybe we're looking at a committee situation. But I do think if we start this season and Kyrie Elam is an afterthought or God forbid he's an active on game day because they just look at like cornerback four. Cam Lewis can do a lot more things for us on special teams and backing up safeties than Kyrie Elam, who's like pretty much just pigeonholed to being a boundary backup. That's going to bring a lot of questions about another Brandon Bean draft pick that seems to be heading in the wrong direction. In respect to Kyrie Elam, he has already gotten to the point where I think what we're seeing, what we saw yesterday against Pittsburgh and what we even saw in flashes as well against the Colts week one were the things that the coaching staff was seeing later on in the year that then saw him be, you know, behind as Xavier Rhodes and stuff where we did have massive questions and we didn't want to accept that and it's dumb and whatever. And then you see the flash plays that he does have out there later on in the years where he had a really nice interception and stuff like that. It's like we know he has that in them in him. But play after play, if all of a sudden you're seeing the things that you are when it comes against the Colts. And then, of course, yesterday, like you pointed out, the Darnell Washington touchdown and then the Calvin Austin play. I'm with you 100%. The big one I take away is the Calvin. He was set up for success in that moment in time, and he failed. Failed horribly against a draft crush of mine, Calvin Austin the third. And it's like, that is unacceptable. If that's supposed to be your strength and you suck at it, you got some big, big confidence questions. You got some big skill questions. You got some big learning questions. And I can understand now if Sean McDermott is just like bottom line, I'm not comfortable with trusting you out there with meaningful snaps. At this point in time, I have other guys that I'm willing to trust. And, you know, Poyer and Hyde are probably willing to trust over you because your play is just not good enough. And the indication and the kind of final nail in the coffin to me where I'm actually thinking that he is looking at that four or five is the fact that he was out there in the fourth quarter against a guy who is absolutely being cut on cut down day in Alex Austin. So it's like, if you're, if you're playing opposite him, you're, he should have gone into that locker room understanding that he's in deep, deep trouble. And I, I, 
I'm with you a thousand percent. It's between Dane Jackson and, and uh, Christian Benford. And I want Benford to win it so bad at this point. Like I, I cannot wish for anything more on this team than it comes to that position battle in Benford. But at the, at this rate, if, if Dane Jackson wins the job, it just is what it is. And it's like Kyrie Elam is just not working out. And it does raise a lot of questions. And it's so funny because you and I are not Dane Jackson haters. We have been saying all along that we just know what Dane Jackson is. And for him to be the starting cornerback on opening day, I want that to be because Kyer Elam and Christian Benford just did not rise to the occasion, not because it's a trust thing. Well, I think we can both sit here now and say with clear eyes that Kyer Elam is just not rising to the occasion. So if Dane Jackson is on the field over Kyer Elam, God bless you, Dane. I hope you play well. I hope you play well anyway, because you're a Buffalo Bill. But it, it feels like to me, he is the better cornerback of the two, which is pretty disappointing at this point in time in Kyer Elam's career. But, you know, you never know when a player is going to hit his stride, when he's going to become a really good player. Hopefully, Kyer Elam still has that in his bag. But Luca, overall, a disappointing outcome. But I will say, I know people are frustrated. The Bills, number ones, did not look good. I would not panic if I'm Sean McDermott and put the ones back out there against the Bears next week. You had your dress rehearsal. It didn't go well. It's fine. I was telling my people, my family I was watching the game with, tonight stinks. The game stinks. This is Saturday watching it. But the only way it really stinks is if somebody important gets hurt. And all due respect to Tommy Doyle, who you just have to feel awful for nobody that was significant to the bills, serious chances of contending in 2023 got hurt in the first two preseason games. And you have to feel really good about that because you look around the league, you see other serious team injuries happening to some teams. We're going to talk about here pretty quickly. And I think the bills have to at least feel lucky in that regard. They have some things to clean up. Luckily for everybody, it's August 20th, not September 20th, and they have time to do that. So, Luca, we're going to put a bow on the Bills' preseason matchup against the Steelers, and we're going to transition into one of our favorite series, the last edition of the 2023 series, Rivals Watch, as we're going to be focusing on the AFC East. And just in general, Luca, I'll tell you, I'm annoyed, because for 20 years, Nobody seemed to want to step up to the plate and challenge Tom Brady. It was like, here you go, buddy. Here's your free division title. We're just going to stay out of your way. We're going to be paying, playing patty cake over here, hoping one of us can sneak into the wild card. And now it's like now the Bills are the king of the, the new king on the block, and everybody's being as aggressive as possible to dethrone them. Kind of obnoxious. I'm trying to even think where I can go. It is obnoxious. I will. I'll give you a little confirmation on that. It is funny that it's where your mind goes. Um, it's just real. I think. I think. <laughs> what I will say is, just let us shine. Yeah. Let it. It would be so nice. Yes. If everyone else in the division went belly up and just accepted that they might not have a Josh Allen and they're not able to really compete every day with this and they just need to work on their own development plan and stuff like that. What I will say is Josh Allen at this point in time, hasn't showed that he's Tom Brady. Tom Brady was Tom Brady from the go. And it was just like, a, almost like, Oh crap. 
we're, we're in a division with already a Hall of Famer six years into his career, it seemed like, although there was that little dip after the two Super Bowls and stuff like, or three Super Bowls, I should say, and stuff. There was that tiny little dip. And then all of a sudden they went and traded for Randy Moss and it was just like, Phew, here you go again. Like, like, oh, now you're the greatest quarterback I've ever seen. Fantastic. <laughs> right. Okay, good. Right. So there was a little bit of a lull there, but, it, you know, it was it's a little different of a, I don't think it's apples to apples again here. I don't no. think the rest of the division's like, Oh, we got another Tom Brady here. It's like all due respect to Josh Allen. He's not Tom Brady at that point in his career, but it does suck. I, I will say as, as then as being a fan of a team that was on the other side of that, you know, of course with Tom Brady, I know exactly where you're coming from. And yes, it's annoying that all of a sudden Miami, new England in their own respect. And then of course the jets with the highlight of all highlights this off season, go and just revamp things up and go right back at us as best as they can. And it's, it's a very, very competitive, ah, competitive division. Let's start with the jets, Luca, because what an off season they have had. And it was obviously the icing on the cake for them. And I mean, the entire cake for them is trading for Aaron Rodgers because the one bugaboo this team had that was seven and 10 last year and really in the playoff race up until the second to last week of the season, despite having way below baseline level quarterback play between Zach Wilson and Joe Flacco is they needed a quarterback upgrade. They were seven and 10. Robert Salas going into his third year as head coach. He's 11 and 23 traded for Aaron Rodgers. brought in a bunch of his friends from green Bay, Alan Lazard, Randall Cobb got rid of Elijah Moore in that process. I'm not sure that those guys are upgrades over Elijah Moore, quite frankly. And the bills do play the jets week one. And I look at this Jets team, Luca, and there's so much I want to get into. I do. I guess I want to give a little bit of a roster overview. PFF ranks their offensive line 20th in the league. Um, I think there are some concerns about this offensive line, particularly early in the season. When you look at the fact that they're going to be having a rookie center in Joe Tittman, when you look at the fact that their best offensive lineman, Elijah Vera Tucker, is working his way back from an ACL injury, he's tracking to start, but you're talking about his first live reps off of an ACL injury. We saw what that did to Tredavious White last year. You have Makai Becton, who is going to be playing right tackle for the first time in his career, and he has had nothing but injuries and inconsistencies since coming into the league. His highs have been fantastic, but there haven't been nearly enough of them. And then on the left side, they have Dwayne Brown, who has been a solid tackle in his career, but he's 38 years old. And I think with a rookie center, with questions about what's going on at tackle and with what's going on with Elijah Vera Tucker, hopefully still working his way back. This is an opportunity for the bills who catch them week one to really win that matchup. If they're up for it, even without Von Miller. And I guess that's where I will start offensively for the jets. Yes. Aaron Rodgers is the big prize, but as an offense overall, knowing what you know about their offensive line, looking under the hood of this roster, how much does this offense concern you? Um, when it comes to the bills, I mean, it concerns me a hell of a lot more than it did last season. I'll tell you that, (laughs) but that's just because of, well, number eight, I was going to say number 12, but obviously it is number eight now. So weird Rogers. It is very strange. I I don't like that. He went to the single digit. If he would have just done another double digit, I'd be like, okay, I can get my head around that. But another going to a single digit, very strange. Um, it, it doesn't concern me, though, when it comes like Garrett Wilson, still a premier wide receiver. He clearly showed he's a beast and I can I expect him to continue to grow. I think once Brees Hall is back and healthy, he will be a very, very good weapon, but he won't be that week one. And then Delvin Cook will be as healthy as he is week one. 
But I think Delvin Cook is, of course, at an age and point where he's not quite what he was. He can still get you once in a while. We saw that last season uh, here in Buffalo, but it's not like he's Delvin Cook of four years ago. And then you pointed it out perfectly. The biggest circle is this offensive line and this offensive line just to for the lack of it just it doesn't look good. It just does not look good. It doesn't look good to the point where you have cryptic things being sent out by Rogers that make people think that he's trying to manipulate his buddy Bakhtiari to be traded and come on over to the jets. And it's like, if they're going to rely on Bakhtiari who hasn't been able to remain healthy to be on the field for two years now, maybe two plus seasons. I don't know what it is. It just feels like forever. If that's the hope to fix your offensive line, as you mentioned, Dwayne Brown, who's up there in age and things like that. You have Billy Turner in the depth, which He's a joke and a half when it comes to memes. Um, The the offensive line is a big question mark. And that's the offensive line is really the thing that I look at when it's like, I love that. You know, I don't like Jets fans, to be honest, other than the fact that unfortunately my father-in-law is one. Um, It's like, I know you're excited. I know it seems like it's really promising. It's just like, even as Bills fans, we can see what poor offensive line play does. And it doesn't matter who you have under center. It doesn't matter who you have out wide. It doesn't matter what is out there to get the ball to. If those five big guys can't do their job at all, you're in deep trouble. And there's only so much that you can do. And you don't have a Josh Allen who can do things on the fly and improvise. All due respect to Rodgers, he's not what he was 10, 12 years ago. He's not as mobile as he once was. He can still throw it with the best of them but he can't really get up and run as much anymore. He can still kind of move. It's like that old man jog run move, you know, but you don't want to be having asking them to do that 20 times a game. Like you need some sort of offensive line play there. I actually am surprised by that 20th rank. I would put it underneath that. I would put them as a bottom eight offensive line. This is one that I, I have some serious doubts about and question marks. And it's like, as you mentioned, Joe Tittman uh, projected to start at center potentially right now. Uh, you have Mackay Becton, which there's question marks with him and everything like that. You know, AVT, it's like, I I will say this. We did see what we saw with Trey White in his ACL comeback, but at the same time, in all due respect to offensive line, I don't think they're as twitchy as uh, corners and they're not required to be as twitchy as corners. So maybe there's something to be said where it's not as bad as that because then, of course, you can just have a nice kind of hard brace around your knee and protect itself. But it is still a question mark. And overall, this offensive line is a problem for the Jets. And I think you pointing out with the week one aspect of this matchup with the Bills, that's a big, big advantage for, in my opinion, for the Bills, just because it's just limited reps for Rodgers in this offense. And even, you know, guys like Alan Lazard, who are going to be brought in or who were brought in to be productive on this team, there might be some things that need to be worked out before they are a well-oiled machine. Everyone likes to point out kind of like the Brady going to the Bucks situation where they started out a little bit slow. It could have something similar, and it's just the nature of the beast. It's like I am much more fearful of the Jets when it comes to later on in the season, which I believe is like week, you know, eight to 10 or what it's mid season, I believe, when they come to Buffalo. I'm more concerned, ironically enough, with that matchup than I am the week one Monday night in New York, just because I think there's going to be a lot of stuff they need to still work on. Yeah, and Dwayne Brown has not even started practicing yet, and Elijah Vera Tucker's missed some practice because of a leg injury that came up midway through camp. Becton reportedly looked good in their preseason game this week, uh, but he still obviously has a long way to go. We shall see, and maybe it's not a slam dunk that Joe Tittman starts at center. Maybe Connor, the other Connor McGovern 
will start there. That might help st stabilize some things. Maybe that's the way they go if they're in flux at other positions. They want to just have the veteran hand in there. But, Luca, this team really, their bread is buttered on defense, and their defense is excellent. They held the Bills to 20 points or less last year in both games. And for context, in the regular season, that happened to the Bills three times in the regular season, and twice it was the Jets. And we know the studs in the secondary. Sauce Gardner is obviously excellent. I think everybody learned now how good Reed is on the other side. But what pops to me about these Jets is we all know the Bills like to run and wave their defensive linemen and have a heavy rotation. The Jets have Quinton Williams, Carl Lawson, John Franklin Myers as their starters, and they can rotate in. Jermaine Johnson, first-round pick last year, Will McDonald IV, first-round pick this year, and Bryce Huff, who I think is criminally underrated, was the guy there in charge of injuring Josh Allen's UCL last year. They are as deep as it gets at defensive line in the AFC and right up there with a team, I think, like the Niners in the NFC as far as depth of players that they can roll in that can wreck a game plan. The Jets defense from top to bottom is just impressive. They, they are one of the more um, just aggressively dynamic, impressive depth chart, even at times, like you mentioned, of course, their defensive line depth just stands out to you as extremely impressive when, you know, Will McDonald, the fourth is kind of looked at as a four five potentially right now on their edge depth. That's, I mean, well done, well, well built by the jets. And then, yeah, it's, it's just one that it makes sense. I, I understand why the bills have only been able to put up 20 or less against this team just because where do you explode? Like, where's the hole? Where's the thing that you actually attack them at? Like, I genuinely don't see anything on their defense that I go, oh, well, he's the weakness that, you know, you would attack this individual, whether it's you're trying to attack the left edge or whatever it is. It's just there is no weakness. I, I think between that and then as as good as Salah is, you know, when it comes to running the defense and getting the defense ready week in, week out, which he did with the Niners before even coming with the Jets at an extremely high level. It's just, it's an impressive side of the ball that they have out there in New Jersey. And, uh, you know, moving forward, it's, it's just going to be a battle this year. Once again, where I think Monday night, you know, if we, if we wanted to even do a prediction, which we will of course do coming up soon, like the prediction for that Monday night game is going to be an absolute grind. Where's your, where's your confidence level at? Cause we talked last off season, you could not have been more confident in the bills going to LA and being the Rams. It's a lot different of a game there, Josh. Uh, where, where, where's <laughs> your head at now with week one? If, if you were going to just, somebody said, Hey Luca, I'll give you a hundred dollars. If you predict the winner. Oh, bills win. I, okay. I, I will say like, I am not, I mean, I was 11 out of 10 confident. I, I mean, I was within two points of predicting the exact score, Josh soft flex over here. Like I, I was that confident that I almost saw the future. It was like, this is exactly how this game's going to go. And, um, what I will say is, like I said, I think week one's going to be a grind. Um, it's going to be a battle. I think the bills are also going to have to work through some kinks. I mean, we saw the penalties, of course, that we just talked about earlier in this episode, there are going to be issues to be worked through. And I think it's going to be both sides on both offenses. Both sides have great defenses on top of it. And it's just like, okay, this is probably a game that if I, you know, and we'll do a score prediction. So this is not my official score prediction. I will absolutely do that when we do our prediction show, but I would have this game probably written down kind of as a, a weird one where it's like 1915 or something really, really strange like that. 
and it's just an absolute grind fest. It's not entertaining to watch if you're not a Bills or Jets fan, but it is entertaining to watch if you're a Bills and Jets fan because literally every every down matters, every drive matters, and I do think the Bills will end up on top, whether it's because they score late to go up on top or they just hold on to a lead late. I don't know, but overall, it's just going to be an absolute slugfest. So you mentioned their defense doesn't have any weaknesses, and I do agree with that. I do think their safeties are are pretty average to maybe even below average. I don't think Whitehead and Adams are one of the better safety tandems in the league, and that's where I think a guy like Dalton Kincaid can really make an impact early. Uh, What I do have concerns about is we saw how sloppy the Bills were last night in a preseason environment. That MetLife Stadium crowd is going to be as loud as it has been in probably a decade as they welcome in Aaron Rodgers, as the big bad Bills are on the other side of the field, and they are on national TV, and they are being hyped as a Super Bowl contender, this is a tough spot for anybody to go into. And I do think the Bills are going to have to weather an early storm. And you've seen it before. Like, a, a crowd is this hyped. We saw it. Rex Ryan's first year with the with the Bills. The Patriots came to town. The Bills went right down the field. Boom, Carlos Williams touchdown. And then the Patriots come out and the crowd is just going nuts. Boom, three and out. And from there, it was like the Patriots were like, okay, we're going to let's remind them who their daddy is. And then the Patriots went on to win the game. I think that the Bills are going to have to weather this storm. And if they're having inconsistent play on the offensive line or if there's communication issues between Morse and McGovern and Morse and Torrance because of the, how loud it is, that could be an issue. And, and to your point, if it is that close of a game, all it takes is one play like that where a turnover happens because an offensive lineman doesn't hear the call and all of a sudden you're on the losing end. I'm not as confident as you. I I don't know if I'm even ready to predict the Bills win. Get me a little closer to that game. Um, I don't think they have to win, though, as weird as it sounds. I do think the Jets have a little bit more pressure early on to win this game, not only because they're home, but because of how tough their, their schedule is to start the season off with. Let's talk about their season, Luca. What kind of record do you think these New York Jets are going to have? So overall, the Jets have an incredibly difficult start to their schedule. I don't have it pulled up right now. I'll try to do that on the fly right here. But I do know that for betting purposes, I have kind of honed in on them just to understand what could happen. I love to do future bets. I already have a bunch of them in right now. And I looked at the Jets and I'm like, I understand the hype. Of course, Aaron Rodgers, all of those things. You open up against the Jets. You have to go to Jerry World. You then host the Patriots, which almost kind of feels like a sigh of relief. But at the same time, it's Patriots, Jets. You never know what happens. At least for them, it's not up in New England. I think that would be a big problem. Then they have to host the Chiefs. Then they go to Denver. Then they have to host the Eagles. And then they have the New York Bowl with them and the Giants. And then, oh, by the way, the Chargers come to town next. It's like... That is a gauntlet of a start of a schedule. And there is a reality that they may only get one or two wins out of that. And I believe that just due to they have some issues early on. They're just working out some things. It just happens. Like I said, similar to like Brady going to the Bucks early on. It wasn't pretty. I think they got absolutely pounded week one by the Saints, if I recall correctly, in 2020. Um, Although I will say like, having to work through things and then also going into an empty dome to play a game has to be a very weird sensation for players that have never experienced something like that had to be very, very strange. I will give them a pass on that. I thought it was even weird watching it, but overall it's like, I can see something where they start out very slow. And then once they get their stride, 
then they have a little bit of an easier schedule when it comes to the Falcons, the Texans, the commanders, things like that. And then all of a sudden they rattled off nine wins and they're nine and eight. Ooh, nine and eight. That's where I got nine and eight. Wow. Drop that in. I didn't even get a reaction out of it. Yes. I had them at nine and eight. It's so funny because the way my brain works, you brought up the 2020 season and I was thinking like, I go back and watch old football games a lot. Not even necessarily the bills. Like I went through a Colts phase from the Peyton Manning era. I went through an 85 bears phase. Um, I'm not really in a particular phase right now, but it's funny, Luca. I don't watch anything from 2020. It's just, it's, it's not football to me. And it's a shame because the bills were so much fun that year, but the empty stadiums just kill it for me. It just, it's, it's not, it's not something I I'm eager to go back and rewatch. Like that season happened. Great. I don't care about it. It has nothing to do with the fact that bills lost an AFC title game. It's just like, it doesn't feel like football, but nine and eight is interesting. I will tell you this. I thought the perfect opener for the jets was actually the Patriots going to New York because ever since Tom Brady left new England, the Bills and the Dolphins have been able to knock off the big bad bully. The Bills have owned the Patriots since Tom Brady left. The Dolphins have won more games than they've lost. And the Bills and the Bills and um, Dolphins have both found their quarterbacks of the future to varying degrees. And they've kind of like cleared that hurdle where the Jets are still out there losing to the Patriots every time they play. So it made so much sense for like the new hero to ride into town and the first week to have the hometown fans see them beat the Patriots. They play the Patriots week three. If the bills beat the jets week one and they go down to Jerry War- world and lose week two, every jets fan in the world is going to be looking at that week three game. Like, Oh my God, here we go again. We're Owen two and Belichick is coming to burn our ashes. And that is the chaos I'm looking for. Um, if the jets go Owen three, it's, it's, I would not predict that. I think man for man, they are much better than the Patriots. But if they go 0-2, that is going to be a tense situation in that stadium. I have them winning 11 games. I think that the thing about the Jets that scares me more so than even the Dolphins, quite honestly, is there are so many paths for the Jets to win week in and week out because of how good their defense is, because of how good I think their running game is. I think that has very little to do with Dalvin Cook. That signing did not move the needle for me much at all. Um, And I realized Bills fans are like, what do you mean? He had like a 70-yard run against the Bills last season. Great. That was the one highlight of his season last year. Everything about his advanced metrics show that he is not the player he used to be. What's up? That's not true. He had that one highlight run against the Colts on that ultimate comeback as well. Don't don't shortchange him. He was the big – he took that screen to the house to keep finalizing that comeback against the Colts. Just don't want you to shortchange that because that was a wild game that I will never forget. So it's like, just sorry, didn't okay. mean to interrupt you there, Two. but there was, there was that one too. Two runs in 17 games. Um, So um, when you look at those charts about like EPA over expected, he is in the bottom left-hand quadrant, which is where you don't want to be as a quadrant quadrant. And then James Cook is actually in the upper right-hand quadrant right next to Taysom Hill, which one is like, this might be a weird metric to be using. But anyway, um, I think, Brees Hall coming back is big for them, but they have the path to beat you where if their offensive is having a bad day, they can win like they won last year defense. If their defense is having an off day, I do think Aaron Rodgers has the ability at this stage of his career to still win some shootouts. I don't think he's the MVP level Aaron Rodgers. I think those days are gone and I don't think he's capable of overcoming a bad offensive line. I really don't at this stage of his career. So there are concerns there, but all in all, 
I think the Jets are going to win 11 games. They're going to make the playoffs. And I think they're going to be the team we, as we go through this tonight that is neck and neck with the Bills for that division title. All right, Luca, let's move on to the next team on our list. It is the New England Patriots. They were eight and nine last year. Bill Belichick has been the head coach for 23 seasons, and he only has six Super Bowl wins. He's kind of a slacker in that regard. <laughs> 31 and 13 in playoffs. 31 and 13 in playoffs. That is incredible. Uh, the one stat the haters will throw out is he is 78 and 83 without Tom Brady in his career. Interesting offseason for them because I think by far the most significant move they made was bringing back Bill O'Brien. Not that he is a great offensive coordinator by any means, but I think he's a good offensive coordinator. And the key words there are he's an offensive coordinator, which is an upgrade over what they had last year with Matt Patricia calling plays. They brought in Juju Smith-Schuster, who I am not convinced is an upgrade over Jacoby Myers. I might actually say he's not, but I think either way, I'm not convinced they got better there. They brought in Ezekiel Elliott to replace Damian Harris. Again, I think there's bigger name value there, but I'm not convinced that's necessarily an upgrade. Mike Gisecki, I, I always say Gisecki, Mike Gisecki was brought in as a second tight end. I think he's going to be interesting in their offense. And I know people are like, well, wait, he didn't do anything in Miami. They phased him out in Miami. I think he has a chance to run that Dalton Kincaid role for the Patriots where he is basically a big slot and he's not going to block at all where Kincaid, I think, will block some. And he and Hunter Henry are going to try to do the same thing that the Bills are doing with Knox and Kincaid. That's at least interesting. But as I'm going through this roster, Luca, I'm looking at their defense. I like Christian Barmore. I like Christian Gonzalez, their, their first-round pick. I like Kyle Duggar. A lot. Matthew Judon is a very, very, very good player. I don't see a single great player on this roster, and I swear I am not trying to hate the Patriots. I spent the better part of 20 years of my life hating the Patriots, but I try to call it like I see it. And it's hard for me to see a team that has to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Bills and what I think the Jets are going to be and what I think the Dolphins can be on their best day and win those games with without one singular great player on their roster. Yeah, they're they are a sum of quality that like and I the quality varies, of course, but there are some of quality. There are some of parts kind of team. And what I will say is I I don't if I were a Patriots fan, which thank God I am not, but if I were one and I would look at this team and understand what they have in house and be like, how can I be optimistic about this? I think the parts that they have are things that together with the proper coaching, which they obviously have some quality coaching and then actually have an offensive coordinator. Best point to be bringing up. It's like, Hey, we have an actual OC again, a guy who understands how to call offensive plays and project and, you know, run a system. It's like, Oh wow, this is a crazy concept. It only worked two years ago. Why did we get off of this path? Um, I think if the right things are in place though, you can find success. And I, I do think the Patriots have an avenue with what they have in front of them to find success. But I'm with you when it comes to the high end games, when it comes to the, the games where like week one, they open up at home to the Eagles. That's probably going to be a tough bout because they don't have anyone that kind of brings them over the top. Whereas then now you're playing a team that has like five guys I can immediately name right now that it's like, oh crap, they are big problem makers for the for the Patriots. Oh, by the way, that includes, you know, Jalen Hurts. It's like if 
you need that. You need that X factor. You need that big dog. You need someone like that when it comes to the big dogs that you're playing against, when you're playing against the bills, when you're playing the Eagles, when you're playing the chiefs, when you're playing the Bengals. And unfortunately for the Patriots, they, well, no, no one's feeling bad for that, but for the Patriots sake, you're in now the conference where there's like 10 teams that you can actually say potentially can win the conference and you're not one of them. And it's because you don't have that X factor. I'm not hating on them overall. I will say it's like I can see them winning games that they absolutely have no business winning. Like that absolutely can happen. And I will say they also, when we get to the projection part, I I think they are going to be a lot better than their over underline, for instance, when it comes to their total wins. And I think they will be a better team. It's just they they don't have enough high end. They don't have that elite thing that you're talking about that will get them over the edge when it comes to like end of season success. They should be able to be more of a problem and they should be able to find more success than what they found last year where, you know, it requires a Jonathan Jones a punt return touchdown in the dying seconds against the Jets in order to win a game nine to three or whatever it ended up being. But like overall, it's like they should still be better. It's just a sum of all parts. That was my guy, Marcus Jones, by the way. Do Sorry, not Marcus disrespect. Jones. They have so many, hey, I, I know it wasn't Jack Jones, my guy. Yeah. So although... Well, he's he busy situation. doing something else <laughs> we got yeah. that whole other situation going on right they got too many jones that i can never remember which jones it is anymore I jack jones remember. was pretty fired up for it on the sideline oh line. come on now. oh sorry that's, that's mean, a low blow it's a shots fired there shots fired. <laughs> um yeah i i think this team like you said i i just i question how they can consistently move the ball unless mac jones takes a significant leap because i look at their wide receiver group Juju Smith-Schuster, Devontae Parker, and Kendrick Bourne. And to me, those are just like three different variations of just a guys. Maybe, maybe Tyquan, Tyquan Thornton. I, have, I don't have his, I don't know yeah, why yeah, I pulled right. my sheet Tyquan down. Yep. The speedster they drafted last year. Maybe he takes a leap. Or maybe this two tight end set with Hunter Henry and Mike Gusecki really takes off. Or maybe Ramondre Stevenson goes from being a very good running back to like one of the best running backs in the league. There are paths there, I assume. Their offensive line is good, not great. Cole Strange was not great last year. I think they're expecting a step out of him. Riley Reef, it was a big addition for them this offseason because they had four different players. This is a wild stat. Have 150 snaps at right tackle last year. That is the definition of a revolving door, and they're hoping they can solidify it with Riley Reef. But overall, Luca, I look at this team. I do not fear them from a Bills standpoint. I think the Bills are kind of over that big bad wolf of Bill Belichick thing. I think they proved that that monsoon game on Monday Night Football two years ago was a fluke by doubling down, tripling down, quadrupling down every time they've seen the Patriots then by pretty much letting them know like who's running the show. And even on a game where the Bills were completely out of gas from DeMar Hamlin, they still found a way to outclass the Patriots in Buffalo when the Patriots season was on the line. So I do not fear the bill the Patriots. I think, unfortunately, to say this, and it sounds disrespectful about maybe the greatest coach, definitely the greatest coach of all time, the Patriots are a team the Bills need to get two wins from, quite honestly. And that's as simple as I can put it. I can't say that about the Jets or the next team we're going to talk about. I think it would be nice to, but I don't think you have to. But the Bills absolutely have to get two wins against the Patriots this year. And I think they will. Um, but so I can't say my fear factor is, is super high for that. I would say one game will probably be uncomfortably close, but much like the Patriots used to do to the bills back in the day in that one close game in the fourth quarter, it's like, Oh yeah, they have Tom Brady and we don't. So they're going to end up winning. I think that's how the bills will win. And then the other game will be kind of a blowout kind of a who's your daddy game. 
second who's your daddy reference. Um, but that's where my fear factor is in there. I'll roll into my prediction. I have them going eight and nine, kind of a Pittsburgh Steelers type eight and nine, where they're going to squeak out some wins against teams that they probably shouldn't. They'll probably be in a lot more games than you expect them to be in. But ultimately, this is not just an X's and O's league. It's a Jimmy's and Joe's, and they really struggle with the Jimmy's and Joe's right now. Yeah, when it comes to the Bills, yes. I, I'm not overly concerned. I'd put like out of 10, a three. It's like, hey, any given day, and even then some, like Bill Belichick could always have a master class. It wouldn't be surprising if he did to really limit the Bills offense and then just devise a way to kind of maximize the offense or have a game plan with Bill O'Brien to figure out what they can do to win, you know, some ugly 17 to 13 game or whatever it might be. I don't find that to be the reality as you're saying perfectly. It's like, look, we've gotten over that hurdle. We have seen domination both in new England and in Buffalo, other than one fluky 70 mile per hour gust win game where they Damian Harris just cracked one off and they just Mac Jones threw it three times. It's like that will not ever happen again, hopefully. And it's like, you just live in the world we do. And it's like the Bills should be able to prevail both times when they face them. What I will say, though, when it comes to projecting the Patriots season, it's like looking at their schedule and, and I keep keep this in mind. I did say with the Jets, it's like I look at them as where they come out a little bit slow and potentially eventually roll some wins together to become like a nine and eight team. When it comes to the Patriots, they play the Jets that we mentioned week three in New York. And if there's a lot of pressure after losing, say, to the Bills week one, like I believe they can. And the the Cowboys, I don't necessarily respect as much as others. Um, I think we even covered that on our NFC East uh, edition of Rivals Watch. But the, the Cowboys could or could not beat the Jets. But I do think that week three game is a circled game. I think that's one that there's a lot of pressure on New York. And that's one that I absolutely can see. Bill Belichick and Bill O'Brien devising a game plan to outpunch their class and squeak out a win somehow, some way. And then they have other games on their roster. Like they will beat the Raiders. I, you want to talk about the funniest game? Like they got to play the Raiders again, which we all know what happened last season. And I, there is no way Bill Belichick is losing that game after what happened last season. They will win that well, game. Jacoby Myers is a Raider now, so he'll just do it for them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They play the Raiders. They play the Commanders. No disrespect to the Commanders, but I think the Patriots should be able to win a game like that. They play the Colts. Um, I think the Patriots-Steelers game is a game they could absolutely win. Yeah. Um, the Patriots host the Chargers in December. That's a game that I could absolutely – it's a 1 o'clock East Coast game in December for an LA team. Like there are games that it's like, no, the Patriots could win this. And all of a sudden you go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I think the Patriots drum roll, please will be nine and eight as well. I see a crazy world between them actually getting a real offensive coordinator, which the last time we saw Mac Jones in a new England offense with a real offensive coordinator, they were double digit wins. It's like between that and Bill Belichick, even though they don't have a lot of X factors or any X factors for that matter, they have enough pieces and enough of some parts with good coaching that that should be able to get them above 500. It's kind of like the Mike Tomlin thing, too, where it's like even if the team isn't there, it's just coaching is so good that it should be able to get you over 500. And I do believe this Patriots team has enough to do something like that out punching their class a couple times and getting over that 500 mark. So yeah, my prediction for them is actually nine and eight and they're over under for the, you know, for what it's worth is only seven and a half. I love that over love it for plus money. I believe last I checked. 
So you have the Jets at nine and eight. You have the Patriots at nine and eight. I assume you have the Bills finishing with a winning record. So we are about to find out if Luca has the entire AFC East finishing with a winning record, which is really hard to do, but it has been done before, I think. Um, all right, Luca, let's talk about the Miami Dolphins because they have had a wild offseason as well. Their head coach is Mike McDaniel. They were nine and eight last season. They were the sixth overall offense in the league, 18th on defense. To shore up their defense, they brought in Vic Fangio to run the show, which should be a massive upgrade for them. They have made a trade this offseason to bring in Jalen Ramsey, but he has a training camp injury and is looking at a month or two still of recovery. And they have Xavier Howard playing opposite Jalen Ramsey. And he's a guy that was kind of like Jordan Boyer last year, just playing through a laundry list of injuries. He had not one, but two injured groins. I can't even imagine trying to play football through that. Um, they traded for Bradley Chubb last year at, at the trade deadline. I sent a first and a fourth. And it's interesting, Luca. I'm kind of getting a Rams vibe. They kind of have a Rams F them picks thing going on with this Dolphins team where you trade a third for Jalen Ramsey. You trade a one and a four for Bradley Chubb. You trade a one, two, four, four, and a six for Tyreek Hill. And in a vacuum, you're like, yeah, give me Tyreek Hill, Bradley Chubb, and Jalen Ramsey. But then you start looking at what that means for the future of your team, that influx of young talent not going to be there, and then compound that with you're bringing in guys that are on the much higher end of the salary spectrum, which is going to weigh down your cap. Do you like this plan? Do you think the Dolphins are a team that should be in that all-in mode? Because I will tell you, I think they have drafted very well. I think J Javon Holland is great. I think they they struck gold last year with Cater Kohu, an undrafted free agency. I think Jalen Phillips looks like he could be a star in this league. They have, Christian Wilkins already is a star in this league. I think that if they would have slow played this, Tua could be a star in this league. He played like it when he was healthy. Jalen Waddle, star in this league. Like they've got some drafts hits much more than the Bills recently. If they had slow played this, I think there was a chance for them to really build this thing out and have like a 10 year runway to really take a shot at it. And they still could have that. But it's interesting to me they push the chips in because there are ways it can backfire, particularly when you look at they have a quarterback that is yet to prove he can play a full season in the NFL. What do you think about the Dolphins with their chips all in approach? I think I, I, I love the point of you being like, hey, it feels like the Rams. What I will say and what I'll separate them from the Rams is because the Rams did something where, you know, before they started really just offloading first, they were also doing things with drafting well and stuff. Eventually, they drafted Aaron Donald and things of that nature where they built somewhat of a roster. And then all of a sudden, they then started really dumping it out and stuff like that. You drafted basically Todd Gurley. Jared Goff, Aaron Donald. And it's like, okay, where can we go from here? And then just build around that before they really had to give any of those massive contracts to them. So by the time they actually paid them that, they already had all these other pieces that they already f those picks for to then create that team. I think Miami almost timed it a slightly wrong where they had to trade for these guys and then immediately pay them in order to have them on the roster without already basically seeing that they should be able to do something for them. And I don't put Jalen Ramsey in this for that matter, by the way, it was just a third. It's like, Hey, and you know, it's a lot of salary 
and stuff like that, but it was just a third. Like you're not trading multiple firsts for a Matt Stafford or a first, second, two fours and a six for Tyreek or a first and a four for Bradley Chubb, where there's legitimate investment in that. I think a third is kind of okay. Um, but overall, I just think the timing of it is very interesting because I I'm with you. It's like they had a lot of pieces, but it wasn't already established enough. Like the Rams in that instance where Todd Gurley and Jared Goff running that offense was already there. And then all of a sudden they just immediately started just getting things around it because it was recognized. And it's like, Hey, we will be paying these guys soon. So let's just get it going now. And then Aaron Donald was already the thing to build around on the defense. It was already a proven commodity. I think they were just doing this at the point of where they're projecting. And unfortunately when you project, it might not necessarily all come to fruition. And it's like, Hey, they are a good team. They have a lot of high-end stuff. I think Jalen Waddles, as you said, is an absolute stud. I, I love a lot of the guys they have on defense. I'm with you on Holland. Kohu looks great. Things like that. But it's like there's projection to a lot of those guys' careers as well where it's like you don't have a known thing, although Waddle is basically a known at this point. And for the bottom line, it also is Holland. But like Kohu, you're hoping still works out and you can still have them kind of on a controlled salary at this point in time things like that. And it's like, if it doesn't work out, you've already screwed your future up. And it's like, now all of a sudden you've, you've plateaued. You've just hit this point now where there's nothing more you can do. And with a plateau comes a steep decline and just going back to the bottom and having to refigure it out. I think at all full health, they can make a lot of noise and stuff, but I bring that point up for a reason and I'll kick it right back to you. (laughs) Yeah, because they have a very combustible roster. And I hate to sound like I'm playing the hindsight game because it is unfortunate that they've already lost Jalen Ramsey for what looks to be a couple of months. And then they had their excellent starting tackle, Taron Armstead, go down with a leg injury. And it looks like he isn't going to be on track. He is going, let me say that clearly, is going to be on track to play week one against the Chargers. But Taron Armstead is a guy that that's been the story of his career. When he plays, it's great, but you just can't keep him on the field. He struggles with injuries. He was basically playing that playoff game against the Bills last year with one arm. Credit to him, but that's the truth. Jalen Ramsey's older. Xavier Howard's older. We know that the struggles, too, has had to stay healthy. Bradley Chubb is a guy that historically cannot stay on the field. And Jalen Phillips is a guy that's been healthy in the NFL, but when you look back to his college career, the reason he fell as far as he did in the draft He could not stay healthy in college, has a long list of concussion problems. So when I look at this team and the fact that they're relying on two older cornerbacks to not drop off, and I don't think we saw Jalen Ramsey at his best last year. I really don't. Howard clearly wasn't at his best, but we'll give him the benefit of the doubt for being hurt. I think there are paths for this to really blow up in the Dolphins' face. And at their best, they can certainly beat the Bills. That's not the question. I I think the Bills can beat them. They can beat the Bills. But successful teams in the NFL are not about, I can beat you one time. It's a 17-game marathon. And if you don't know if your quarterback's going to be there more than 10 to 12 games, or if you don't know if your left tackle's going to be there more than six or seven games, or the prize prize trade chip you got in Jalen Ramsey is going to miss half the season, you, you start adding that stuff up, What's it going to look like as an overall record? Because that's all that matters. It's not about what are you at your ceiling. It's about what are you in totality? This is a physical sport. And the injury bug can come for anybody. It came for the Bills last year for sure. But that's where I hesitate on this Dolphins team. My fear factor for them, if they are fully healthy, is about an eight or a nine. They match up very well with the Bills, much like the way the Bills had built their team to try to beat the Chiefs. I believe the Dolphins have been trying to build their team to beat the Bills. And they have done it successfully 
except for the fact that their guys can't stay healthy. I think if the, if the Dolphins are fully formed, both of these games against the Bills are going to be very sweaty games, and the Bills are going to struggle to win those games. They're going to be uncomfortable. But I don't believe they're going to stay healthy. And that's why at the end of the day, I look at the schedule and I'm like, I think the Dolphins are a 10-win team. I think it'll be an underachieving 10-win team that frustrates fans because there will be moments where they go out there and they beat either a Philadelphia or a Buffalo or a Kansas City. And they're like, holy cow, we are one of the best teams in the league. But then they'll get three or four key players hurt or they'll hit a stretch at the end of the season where they just can't get it going. And I, you know, I just, I just wound up into a point that I didn't even know I was going to make tonight, Luca. I think lost in this Dolphins conversation about Tua's injuries. There was a stretch last season when Tua was healthy and their offense got stuck in neutral. And people forget that because the larger story is Tua got hurt. And that is a huge story. But it started with that San Francisco game. It carried into that Chargers game. The one game they looked great was in Buffalo. Fantastic. And then they didn't look great against Green Bay. And then Tua was out. And the story is, oh, well, the offense was top five in the sport. If Tua's healthy, we're great. There's a part of me that's like, are you great? Because it didn't seem like defenses are really having to do anything tricky to stop you. And you didn't have a real counterpunch for what they were doing. The Bills essentially stuck to their original game plan and didn't copycat what the Chargers and Niners did. And then you saw the Dolphins go up and down the field on them. So there's a piece of me that, while I am concerned about the injuries, I'm also concerned about what do they have when teams make them play left-handed, not a pun for two of them. <laughs> Love it. What do they have? Yeah, what do they have when they make them play right-handed? Um, there you go. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm with you. I actually was going to bring that up if you didn't, but it. I'm, I, I know I saw it, and I believe you even brought it up to myself you know, off air some other time where it's like, yeah, if you really look at it, Tua may have not been a hundred percent. Not a lot of players are a hundred percent, honestly, later in the season, but due to his, you know, circumstances, definitely it'd be understandable if he wasn't a hundred percent and there could have been something there, but in all reality, what he was playing a lot of those games and then it just didn't look impressive. The one that I honestly stands out to me is the Packers game what was it Christmas Eve or Christmas or whatever it was. And I remember just going, this Dolphins team is just sputtering out. Like other than a big play to Waddle, you know, basically I, I don't even remember what it was, but I feel like I remember the Waddle play being kind of just a quick pass and Waddle just doing what he does and, and stuff like that, or just a, a reek streak essentially for that matter. It's like outside of those big chunk plays that then these all world players that they have, take them to the house. I just don't see where sustainable offense comes from. And then like things like the Ravens game last year happens where <laughs> for whatever reason, the Ravens are just putting some bum rookie on Tyreek one-on-one every time. And it's like, okay, like Harbaugh, can you talk to your boys over there? It's already happened twice. Can you not let it happen a third time? It's like things like that happened last year that kind of fluffed up what they had going on. And I think really when you look at this team, when it comes to a 17 game season, I don't know if I trust it, even at full health. I think they, of course, I agree with you, can take anyone at any time. I just think there's even at full health question marks where I go, I don't know if I can trust them. Like if I were to go betting purpose wise, 
I don't know if I could ever trust them to be kind of a dog to put money on because I just don't know what that offense is going to look like on that day. I just don't know what you're going to get out of it, especially when you get in the later part of the seasons. What I will add to that, because I brought up that point is early in the season, I think like I brought up with the Patriots where they kind of get their schedule done in a way that favors maybe winning a game or two more so than what they probably should. I think it's almost reverse for the Dolphins. One, they don't get the sun advantage when it comes to the Bills. They will be playing the Bills week 18, you know, for all of intents and purposes, hopefully for the Bills sake, it doesn't matter. But if it does, that's, you know, it does, you know, that's what it is. The week before that, they're at the Ravens, December 31st. The week before that, they're hosting the Cowboys, another tough team and a tough point where it's like you would have rather had the Cowboys, you know, when it was outside because they're a dome team, whatever it is. The Titans, December 11th come in. It's like, you have these teams that are coached and or and or good, and it's like they're coming at the wrong time, and then you're playing like the Panthers early in the season when you'll beat them any given day. So because of that, I actually think there's more losses in their schedule than probably what people would expect if you looked at it just kind of opponent-wise. And I actually have the Dolphins 8-9. and nine. I do not believe in this Dolphins team. I do not believe in Mike McDaniels. I don't believe they have until they prove us otherwise and have a 17 game season where Tua is healthy the whole time. And like, I never wish injury. So I hopefully he can, so we can see what we get out of this, you know, as a football fan, but overall, I just don't trust them to sustain win after win after win. And I don't think the schedule falls in a favorable manner for them because I don't see them being a team that goes into Philly and beats them. I just don't. I I don't see. I think they'll get outmanned. I think they'll get out. They will just be run over because like when we saw the Niners, for instance, it was just a bloodbath. What was that? Two years ago? Was it last year? Last year, that was the, that was when the yeah. Tua skid started. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, it's like, and the Eagles are kind of just that same thing. So you got that. I don't see them as they can absolutely beat the chiefs, but you're playing at arrowhead on November 5th or no, sorry. Is that the London game? I believe actually, I just saw nine. Yeah. They moved that. it. I think it's to Mexico. Cause it was weird that they didn't put oh, Tyreek Hill back to Kansas city in actual Kansas city. Yeah, that is strange. I, I look, I saw the at Kansas city, but now, okay. So they actually luck out on that one. Very <laughs> much so. Yeah. Like, Oh, I was like, you do not want to go to arrowhead on November 5th when they are like rolling. But even that said, Kansas city will be in mid season form at that point. And that is not the time you want to be playing Kansas city. You want to be playing those teams early on in the season. And it's like, they just, their schedule didn't line up right to me. And overall, I just see them losing a couple games that are going to frustrate dolphins fans and look, you know, season comes and goes. And it's like, you know, a 10 win team in the AFC could probably win because there's going to be a lot of teams beating up on each other. And they're sitting there at only eight wins. And it's like, if we didn't lose to the Titans on week, you know, sit, well, what is that? Uh, 18, 17, 16, 15, 14. If you didn't lose to the Titans on week 14, we could have possibly been in there. And it's like, well, unfortunately you did and you weren't fully healthy or whatever the search circumstance was. And it's, that's the kind of team I expect the Dolphins to be this season. The Dolphins do get a lot of credit for drafting. Well, I mentioned this earlier, Jalen Waddle to uh, Jalen Phillips, uh, Javon Holland, even Cater Kohu, an undrafted free agent. I mean, they have drafted very, very well. Christian Wilkins, one of the better young defensive tackles in the sport. But one area they've really struggled with, even more so than the Bills, offensive line. PFF ranks them 20th overall. And two of the biggest weak links on that offensive line are first-round pick Austin Jackson and second-round pick Liam Eikenberg, both of which look like they don't belong on the field. And you compound that with 
what they have with Taron Armstead, probably going to play week one, but how many games is he going to play? They did bring in Isaiah Wynn from New England. I thought they got way too much credit for that move. Isaiah Wynn was a guy that did not impress in New England, and they let him go for a reason. And they signed him, I believe, after the draft. There is a reason why a tackle in this NFL is available in May. It's be probably not because he's going to go out there and start 16 games for you at a Pro Bowl level because tackles are very hard to find. Does it give them insurance against Austin Jackson? I guess. I think it gives you another version of Austin Jackson. But that, to me, is where the biggest concern comes with this with this Dolphins team. All right, Luca, let's talk about predictions. Oh, we already did the predictions. Let's. I, I have one question for you. And we may have already kind of baked this into our overall conversation, but however you want to take this, whether it's in one game or whether it's just in general for the regular season, Dolphins and Jets. I think those are the two teams most people look at, all respect to the Patriots, Dolphins and Jets. How do you differentiate them? Which team do you fear the most overall for the Bills' sake? Oh, the Jets. I think mm-hmm. the Jets can actually sustain a season. I, I think yeah. they are the kind of team, like you mentioned earlier, that can actually sustain a 17-game season and go pound for pound, neck to neck, you know, punch for punch with you week in, week out, and just kind of, if if the Bills at one point are, say, five and three or whatever it is, the Jets could be right there with them at, you know, four and four or whatever it is, and then just rattle off some wins themselves as the Bills are trying to do, you know, their own right. It's the Jets are a team like that. I Like I said, with the Dolphins, I just think the Dolphins are a team that will find themselves to be too inconsistent and not have, they don't have that killer ability to put teams away because they just aren't that team to begin with. They are that, they're that flash and dash team. They're that team that wants those big chunk plays all the time and they rely on them. And the problem is, I mean, teams now or defenses now, especially if we're talking about offense, play back forward. And it's like you just are limiting that deep play as much as you possibly can because you're willing to give away the five to eight yards. And if that's all you're doing, unfortunately, I just don't know how sustainable that is with the Dolphins because Tua, to me, can be a franchise guy, but I don't think he can really be a guy that takes over because there's just limitations to who he is as a player. And eventually, like we kind of pointed out, once things get put on tape, I think that's something that then eventually catches up to him and the offense will eventually be caught up to. And it's not a Josh Allen situation where he can just improvise and just make things happen on top of it. And Aaron Rodgers can do that. Aaron Rodgers can just all of a sudden take over and just create these things out of nowhere. It's what, I mean, he's become one of the best of all time because of it. It's like, he can do that if he needs if he needs to, you know, a situation. And that team is just more impressive to me when it comes to sustaining wins week after week. And therefore, they are a bigger threat to the Bills when it comes to the division over the season. I'm with you. I think they have more ways they can beat you, and it's more sustainable over the course of a season. Final question. If the Bills lose week one to the Jets, will you listen to the Rodgers McAfee appearance that week? Yeah, absolutely. I'm addicted to McAfee. I will, although... I, I don't even think he's technically confirmed that. And I almost wonder if he won't anymore since McAfee is now going to be on ESPN. Cause I feel like Rogers kind of has this thing against big media, we'll call it. And all of a sudden with McAfee being there, although they are obviously pals, I do wonder about that. Cause McAfee has not made that official yet. I don't believe. Um, but if he is on there, if he's doing a weekly appearance and you know, the bills do lose 
uh, week one on Monday night, which then I would imagine would be a Wednesday appearance for Rogers. Um, I will not be watching or no, I will be watching just cause I can't get enough of it. And I would love to hear, you know, kind of Rogers minds, especially in a week one situation going into a new, I would want to know what that was like for him. Like just as a football fan. Like if the bills lose like 45 to 10, you'll still take it in. Cause I think that, I'll just, that might be a little, t- <laughs> I time. don't expect that to be the case. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> I hope not. All right. Well, this was fun. Rivals watch 2023 is in the books. Uh, preseason game. Number two is in the books. Next up for these Buffalo bills is a preseason finale against the Chicago bears on Saturday. They'll get to see their old friend Tremaine Edmonds. Although I doubt he plays in that game next up for Luca and I, is on Monday night, tonight, when you're listening to this, we have our Madden 24 celebration. Join us on Bill's Chat YouTube. Myself, Luca, and Stokes are going to be playing head-to-head games against each other of Madden 24. Hang out. Come hang out with us. Talk Bills, talk Madden, whatever you want. We'll be there. We're going to be having some fun with it. We're not going to be taking it too, too seriously. Just trying to enjoy the game and enjoy each other's personalities and just have some fun with you all. Hopefully, you come join us for that. And then we'll be back on Friday for Bill's Chat Live, joined by our friends from Air Raid Hour, where the four of us will be doing a 53-man roster projection. Look forward to that all across the Built-In Buffalo network, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. And then Luca and I will be back next Monday on Bill's Chat Podcast. For Luca, I am Josh McCarty. We will see you next week on Bill's Chat. Bye.